Hey, this is Matt Markin, and welcome to another episode of the Adventures in Advising podcast. Thank you for listening and supporting this podcast. Each episode, we strive to bring together the global academic advising community to share knowledge, best practices, and of course, advising stories. Make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Advising Podcast. Without further ado, here's the latest episode, and as always, keep advising. Hello, and welcome to Adventures in Advising with me, Colm Cronin. And hey, greetings and salutations. This is Matt Markin, and welcome to episode 27 of Adventures in Advising. Thanks for joining us for the second episode of 2021. We have a couple of fantastic interviews coming your way. Yep, but first let's give some shout outs. First one goes out to my buddies over at CSUSB Business Students, who on Instagram reposted about our podcast and asked the question to their followers, have you listened to this podcast? No? What are you waiting for? So thank you so much. I love you all in JHBC. Go Yotes. And also a shout out to Jim Fasulo from Portland Community College who reached out and said, I enjoyed the last Adventures in Advising podcast, especially the interview with Ernesto Guerrero. I find the show is at its best when elements of an advisor's role are illuminated, like in this podcast with Ernesto as he detailed an academic advisor's role. Awesome. We appreciate that, Jim. Thank you so much for continuing to listen into the podcast. And we definitely want to continue having more conversations like the one we had with Ernesto. So let's dive right into our first interview. This one is with Jessica Davis, lead advisor for the College of Social and Behavioral Sciences at Cal State San Bernardino. This interview is great as we talk about being a lead advisor, working with impacted majors, working with and her passion with transfer students and more. So let's take a listen. Jessica Davis is currently the lead advisor for the College of Social Behavioral Sciences at California State University, San Bernardino. Jessica has worked in higher education since graduating high school when she started working as a student assistant in the health center at Cal State Fullerton. Once she transferred to Cal State San Bernardino, she worked in the College of Education as a student assistant while earning her BA in sociology. Once she graduated, Jessica started working for the School of Social Work as an administrative assistant, where she got her start in advising working with pre-social work majors. In 2011, Jessica started her master's degree in higher education at the University of Redlands, where she focused her research on advising differences between different generations of students. In 2014, Jessica was hired as one of the first college professional advisors for Cal State San Bernardino, where she has spent the past six years helping build the advising program for the College of Social and Behavioral Sciences and help mature the advising program for the university. In 2017, Jessica started her doctorate education at Cal State San Bernardino in educational leadership. Her dissertation focuses on advising preferences of post-traditional transfer students. More recently, Jessica became a steering committee member for the advising transfer student community through NACADA. Jessica also was recently published in the December 2020 edition of Academic Advising Today, along with other steering committee members from across the country for an article that focuses on incorporating transfer guides at the two and four year level. Personally, Jessica is married to Robert, her husband, for almost three years. They currently have three cats, MJ, Sadie and Goose, and Robert and Jessica are expecting twins in February. In her free time, Jessica enjoys crafting, working out, and spending time with her nephews. Jessica is also an avid Grateful Dead fan and enjoys finding live recordings from them she hasn't heard yet. 
Jessica, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. We're delighted to have the opportunity to chat to you. And uh, Matt read out a really interesting bio, and I suppose it kind of maps a little bit uh, of your path. But can you, I suppose we talk to, when we have guests on, we, we talk to them about their path into advising and maybe the some of the, the, the whys behind some of the, the decision was higher ed, an area you always wanted to work in or how did you end up in the position that, that you're currently in, Jessica? I think I was um, definitely one of those people who kind of fell into higher education. Originally, when I went to college, I wanted to teach history. I wanted to teach high school history. Um, and part of the program that I was in at the time, they had us doing um, classroom hours. And I realized very quickly that I did not want to be in a classroom uh, with younger kids. It was just not the area for me. Um, but I still liked working in education. It was just something that my mom was a teacher. It's something that I kind of enjoyed already. And so I thought, okay, well, what what can I do to stay in education, but then not necessarily be in a classroom? So my next path was uh, counseling and guidance uh, is what I was going to do. When I transferred to Cal State San Bernardino, I thought I was going to go into counseling and guidance um, began working, um, actually with that program as their student assistant, kind of to see what their students were going through through that program. And then again, slowly realized that younger students were just not my forte. Um, and so when I graduated and started working for the School of Social Work, that's where it kind of clicked. I started working with college students a lot more. I started working with the students who were applying to the Bachelor of Social Work program and helping them with their applications and just started taking over their advising for the pre-majors and said, okay, let's, let's see how this works out. And um, so I never really had a plan of I'm going to go into higher education and do academic advising. I didn't know academic advising was a thing at the time. And so when I, when I started, I was just like, yeah, I just like helping students. That's all I'm doing. And I think somebody mentioned to me, oh yeah, you're doing advising. I'm like, oh, can you do a career with that? <laughs> and so that started me on this, on this path was looking for a master's program that helped me get in more into higher education and then looking at what are, what are actual advising positions and what do they entail? So it's been a definite journey of just kind of exploring what's out there and what I can do to continue to help students. Before going more into your role as an advisor, as a lead advisor, I had a question about because you transferred. So you were at Cal State Fullerton, then you transferred to Cal State San Bernardino. So a lot of times when 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 we think about transfer students, we think of transfers going from like a two-year community college to the four-year. And you were actually at a four-year and then transferred to a four-year. How was your transfer experience like? I think for my transfer, for me, it was actually pretty easy. And it may have been because while I was at Cal State Fullerton, I did a lot of my own advising. Um, I met with a faculty member to kind of go over my degree audit on what I had needed for my major at the time. Um, but I had to figure out a lot on my own. Um, I didn't really have anybody else to kind of say, this is what you need to do. And so I, 
actually randomly made the decision to transfer to Cal State San Bernardino. I was not happy at Cal State Fullerton for no fault of them. I just didn't like being far away from home anymore. Um, And so I applied on the Cal State Apply website and got admitted. I'm pretty sure like the same day. They were pretty fast about it. And I sent in all my transcripts and they said, okay, this is when you start. Here's how you register for classes. And I said, okay, great. Um, and then I just, I just started on campus. It was one of those, I think because I was coming from one Cal State campus to another Cal State campus, it was a little bit easier. Um, I did meet with a faculty member when I first started just to make sure that everything had transferred over properly. And I met with the registrar's office, you know, to make sure that everything had kind of transferred properly. But other than that, I kind of wandered around campus to figure out, okay, what do I need to do in order to be successful? There was no, to my knowledge, you know, transfer orientation at the time. It's just you just show up and you start taking your classes and then here you go. Um, I know Matt mentioned, and, and we're going to get into, I, I suppose the the what was that, what you've actually had published in a little while. But you, you've had th- some things published and, and some things published in relation to with Nakada as well. I suppose interested just to hear about you know how you first came across um, Nakada and and got involved w- with them. I think I first heard about Nakata when I started my master's program, um, when I started doing more of my lit review for my master's program, when I was looking things up for what advising is and how to advise students and what are these different theories that people are talking about and different approaches. And I found out, I was like, oh, there's a professional organization for advisors. I had absolutely no idea. Um So I signed up just as a graduate student while I was at the University of Redlands, and it's taken me a while to get more and more involved. Um, So I, I, when I started as a professional advisor, I had the opportunity right away. Our dean of the college, he goes, you want to go to conferences? You go to conferences. And so I think I had been working for the college probably for almost six months. And I was able to go to Hawaii for one of the conferences. And I was like, oh, I like that. This is nice. You go to Hawaii for conferences and then um, being able to travel around and meet different people who were doing the same thing that I was even longer than I had known that it existed. Um, And so for a while, it was really just kind of sitting in the background and learning as much as I could about the organization and about advising and where advising has been. Um, and then most recently, I kind of just took the plunge. I decided that, you know what, it's time. I've been in advising for a while now. I'm a lead advisor. Let me just put myself out there. And so the applications came out for the steering committee on transfer students. And I just put in my application. I was like, okay, Let's see what happens. Let's see where it goes. And, you know, I did a I did a short interview with the the steering committee chair and he goes, he said, okay, if you want to do a two year commitment. And I said, I can do it. Let's go. Um, And so it's just kind of been it's been more of me getting up the courage to actually put myself out there and be more involved with Nakata. Um, 
rather than, you know, using all of the amazing resources that Nakata has just in the background and using them and actually saying, okay, I'm going to move forward and jump into this. Like you said, Nakata has a, a ton of different resources, but also a ton of a lot of opportunities. But sometimes we don't know, should I do it? Should I not? We get a little nervous to do it. And but like you said, you kind of got that courage up and then kind of dived right in. And that's probably the best way, best way to do it. Now, before we get more into the article of, of in academic advising today, you mentioned being a lead advisor. Can you talk about when you started as an advisor to now being a lead advisor and what some of those differences are? Sure. I was um, hired as the first advisor for the College of Social Behavioral Sciences as one and one of the first professional advisors for the campus. I mean, we had had advising and academic services, obviously, for the campus, but the colleges didn't have advisors. Um, and so the university had made a decision, we need college advisors. Um, and so I, I went for that position um, and was thankfully offered the, the position. And I just started off as an advisor. My caseload was the entire college. And it originally started as just see students. That's, that's all you need to do. We have these goals that need to be met in terms of graduation requirements. And you just see anybody in the college who needs to be seen. Um, I started in September of 2014. By that December, I had taken over supervision of our peer advising center. So that was handed to me and said, okay, here you go. You're going to supervise students now. And I said, okay. Um, and started doing that. Um, but when it, it really turned into a more of a lead advisor position when we hired a second advisor, because um, then there was somebody else there advising students. And it really turned into more of a coordination position of making sure that I'm working with the department chairs on anything that they need to make sure that the students are served. Um, it turned into, again, working with our peer advisors and training our peer advisors, making sure that they're doing advising properly and making sure that they're learning about advising um, and what that takes to, to help other students. And over the past, you know, six years, it's just kind of grown in terms of my duties of more assessment and more coordination, um, doing more with events in terms of orientation or other events that we have on campus. And so it's just more, a lot more administrative duties that have kind of been added as each academic year passes. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into The Admissions Game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for sure-fire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop your face onto a water polo hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with The Admissions Game wherever you podcast. Um, I, I know one of the, the topics I suppose we're going to talk about is in relation to transfer students. And, and um, we, we heard a little bit about your own experience um, transferring over. It's something that 
isn't very common, certainly in an Irish or a UK setting. So maybe, um, you know, just to kind of set the scene for, for listeners who are maybe outside of North America, just, um, you know, how how common is it for for students to, to transfer in, you know, in, in within the United States? Uh, it does it tend to be, you know, mainly from that community college to a four to a four year institution or um, what, what would be some of the reasons for that, Jessica? Yeah, I wish I wish I looked up the statistics because I knew this question was coming. I don't know them off the top of my head. I think the U.S. is unique in in the way that we've built our higher education system, um, and it's it's definitely still growing and changing um, in in the way that we do higher education for sure. Um, the the community colleges that we have is is traditionally what a student would transfer from. They would transfer from a community college to a four-year institution. Um, And the community colleges really started kind of as those areas just for students to get technical training. Um, And then they grew into a more liberal arts programs and then to where students could then go to a four-year institution. Um, So, the community colleges, um, one of the, the models that they have is they accept 100% of students. They're open access. So you could be 18 years old out of high school. You could be in your 50s or 60s and just want to go and take classes at a community college just for, for professional or personal development. And you can do that. You don't have to necessarily go through this lengthy application process, you know, and be admitted and then do this degree program. So that's one of the the big benefits of the community college is to allow people to do what they want to do at, at that level. Um, we obviously have, you know, the, the transfer degrees and what would be considered an associate degree or a certificate program that students can do and then transfer to the four-year institution. Um, and that's probably a large majority of what students will do. Um, and there's a number of reasons for that. It could be um, you know, community colleges are very well known for being cheaper in tuition, for sure. Um They also have a lot more flexibility in the way that they offer classes. So for students who are working full time or who already have kids or who have other responsibilities, going to a community college and taking your time to do what you want to do with your classes is a big benefit. Um, Or even students who maybe didn't finish high school. They may go and finish, you know, their their uh, general education degree, their GED, then go into the community college classes before transferring to a four year institution. So it's it's really kind of that helping step for a lot of students who maybe want to go to a four year institution later and it gives them that extra boost or even for students, like I said, who just want to take a course, they want to learn how to use computers And so they'll take a couple of computer courses at a community college to help with that that personal development. And so it's been a it's it's definitely given students a freedom to kind of improve themselves on their own time um, again versus having to do a full degree program at the four year level. 
Community college, I think, at least California, we have a lot of articulation agreements with the community college system, with the CSUs, with the UCs. And so if a student has a plan in terms of, I want to go to a Cal State, but I don't know which one, it's like, well, here are GEs in the different areas, and here are your variety of choices you can take, and you can fulfill a lot of your transfer requirements that way. Now, you and some of the steering committee members within NACADA uh, for transfer students were published within Academic Advising Today. Can you talk more about what that was about and more about those transfer guides? Sure. This was something that was kind of brought up in one of our meetings of like, hey, let's write an article for Academic Advising Today. And so again, it was a decision that I made of like, I could do that. Let me let me jump in and do that, um, especially because my, my work... Um, revolves more around transfer students in terms of what I'm interested in. And so we had conversations on what actually, you know, constitutes as a transfer guide. What is a transfer guide? And so this article that we wrote was really more of that introduction of what is a transfer guide and why is it needed? Um, just like you're talking about with the articulation agreements, there's so many are different articulation agreements just within the state of California itself among the campuses. And then depending on which system you go into for a four-year institution, or if you go to a private institution or, you know, whatever, or if you even want to go out of state, there's different requirements. And so the idea behind it was to give, um, transfer advisors and transfer offices, this idea of if a student has a plan to transfer from the community college that they start at to a particular institution, how do they do that? What are the steps that they need to do and how do we have that partnership between the community college and that four-year institution to make sure they kind of basically have that roadmap of, okay, you're going to start here this is your end goal and this is the guide that you're going to follow during your time at the community college, whether that's the traditional two years or it takes you longer that you're working with community college counselor or advisor to set up that plan. And that guide follows you into admissions at the four year institution level to get you ready for, um, starting your program at the four-year university. So the this article was really more of like, what is the guide? Um, and what is the purpose of the guide? And why is it important? Um, and our goal later on is to possibly then look at, okay, well then how do we now put in what is in the guide? So what is actually in the guide at this point? Um, and so we're trying to look at, okay, are there institutions that already have transfer guides set up between community colleges and four-year institutions? And how do those look and how do those help students? Jessica, maybe you could talk a little bit about, because um, it's really interesting for me to hear about the, the process and, and how it works, but what are some of the challenges that um, transfer students might face? I think there could be there could be a number of challenges. The biggest one is definitely going to be those articulation agreements and figuring out what is articulation, what are they taking at the community college that they can make sure is going to transfer to the institution that they want to go to. Um, 
And sometimes students have to make that decision very, very early. So again, in the state of California, we have our Cal State University system, we have our University of California system, and then we have a number of private institutions. Each of those areas have different requirements for transferring. And so for students who started a community college, if they don't know immediately almost which university they want to transfer to, they could end up taking classes for the wrong system. You could end up wanting to go to a University of California, but if you're going to a community college, that would be considered what we call a feeder school to a Cal State. So meaning majority of the students would go to a Cal State instead. You may be set up with taking classes that are going to transfer to a Cal State and not a University of California. Um, And you might not know that until you get close to graduating with an associate's degree and the university that you applied to said you don't have the classes that you need in order to transfer. Um, So it's making sure that students go in knowing what their options are to make sure that they're taking those classes that they need. Um, Another struggle is sometimes just getting the information to transfer. Um, What does the application process look like? When are the deadlines to apply? Um, Certain programs have different requirements. I know for us at San Bernardino, um, having worked in the School of Social Work, our Bachelor of Social Work program has a supplemental application that students have to submit before they're fully admitted into that program. So they can be admitted into the university, no problem, as a pre-major, but if they don't submit that supplemental application, they're not in the program. Or if they do submit that supplemental application and they're not admitted into the program, then what then what are we doing you know for the student to make sure that they're still on track with their graduation goals and career goals um so that's something else that students sometimes are not aware of are maybe certain prerequisite courses that they have to take for a program that they can take at the community college or certain um separate application processes that they have to do while they're at the community college before they come to the four-year institution. Um, And then the other thing that I've seen is transfer students get a reputation of because they have been in college for either two years or more, there's taking college classes that they know what to do. So that when they apply to the four-year institution, there is an assumption that they know how college works. which is not necessarily true at the four-year level because we're very different. Our policies and procedures are different. Um, The campus is going to be certainly different than what they're used to. And so they sometimes have a hard transition from something that they're used to to that four-year institution. It's actually, there is actually a term we call transfer shock. Um, students coming over from the community college to the four-year institution. And so that's one of the struggles that I see with my transfer students. They always tell me, I'm a first-term transfer student. I have no idea what I'm doing. And I have to calm them down and tell them, well, you got here, so you do know something. So now let's kind of walk through, okay, what is the rest of the process 
for them. So um, there could be, I mean, I'm sure there's a number of other things that I'm forgetting, you know, to mention, but it's just, it's going to be dependent upon the student. But those are definitely the biggest ones that I've seen is making sure that you're taking the classes that you need to transfer. You're making sure that if you want to go into a certain program, you know what that entails. And then just that transition itself, um, coming from a, you know, sometimes smaller campus to a much larger campus and learning, you know, those different policies and procedures. Yeah, and you bring up a good point that there's that misconception that just because the transfer students are have been in college that, yeah, they exactly know what to do, when to do it. They know all the deadlines. But I think like you and, and myself, like when we talk to these students, we tell them that it it's a it's a different culture. You know, when they were at the community college, they had to get used to how that college operated, what those deadlines were, how those classes were, how to navigate that institution. And then when they get here, it's kind of doing it all over again. And especially now when everything's just virtual. I mean, we have our students that started last fall in a virtual environment. So if they're here next fall. And if we are cross our fingers on campus, it, it's like coming to a new campus again. My question to you would be if if you had like a wish list, can you think of anything that can help with this transition? I think, I mean, definitely going from virtual environment to back in person, I think um, is going to be hard because these students may have never been on campus before. Um, so, so definitely, um, I'm, I'm hoping that once we do get official word that yes, we can be back on campus, that it is not just on the first day of classes, um, that we are given an opportunity to get back onto campus a few weeks before classes start to give students an opportunity to, explore campus, um, to give students an opportunity to find out where areas are and where um, not only their advising resources are, but just where everything on campus is. Um, Because normally they would come onto campus for orientation, but for our returning students, they've already been through orientation, at least virtually. Um, And so do we then offer a makeup orientation or extra campus tours, you know, for, for these students to kind of help them adjust and say, Hey, we're going to have this open house event for our current students to allow you to safely come on to campus to, to explore. So I, I think it's just more of giving them that time over the summer to adjust to being on campus versus kind of just throwing them into the classroom in August and saying, okay, well, we're back on campus. Good luck. Cause I, I, I think that that's not, not just our, our transfer students, but all of our students. Um, and even us as, as staff and our faculty of getting back into the swing of being in our offices at, you know, seven or 8 AM and, <laughs> You know, working until working until that working until five o'clock, and then having to drive home. And you know, my commute's pretty short right now. But once we get back on the campus, it's it's going to be a lot longer, and I'm going to have to readjust to to that. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. 
Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. Yeah, and there, there will be quite the, the readjustment, uh, I'm sure, for, for all of us. Um, I know one of the, the other areas um, I think that, that you mentioned um, in, in terms of your uh, areas of interest was around kind of generation differences um, between students. Could you talk to us maybe a little bit about that? Uh, sure. I, um, I really don't know where that interest came from to be completely honest with you. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I actually knew you guys were probably going to ask me about that. And I'm like, where did that actually come from? And I have no idea. Um, it's just something that I kind of started looking into. I'm not sure if maybe it's because my mom went back to school when I was in high school. Um, so I kind of saw her going through the community college system and then through the four-year system and her being, you know, what would be considered at the time a non-traditional student getting her education versus me around the same time graduating high school and going into college at 17 years old. Um, and so I just... It's something that kind of just all of a sudden interested me. And I'm like, you know, there's there's a difference here between um, students who are around, you know, at the time were younger around my age when I was doing my bachelor's degree. And I'm sitting in classes with older adult students and listening to their stories and listening to their answers in classes um, and talking to them about about their different life experiences. And when I started working for social work, seeing those differences in the students and how I would kind of have to talk to them, uh, even as an administrative assistant, talking to those students, my um, students who were coming in who had started off as freshmen had very different questions than the students that I was answering questions for who were going to be transfer students who were maybe a little bit older and applying to the program. And so I think that's where it maybe just started, just some kind of seed had kind of planted in me of, you know, I, I kind of realized that there was a difference in how I needed to help these students. Um, and so when I did my master's degree, I knew I wanted to focus my project on advising. Um, but by that time, I had learned that advising was so broad that I had to narrow it down. And so that's when I started um, kind of looking at those differences in generational preferences and, and what are the generational differences? What is the research out there on generational differences between students? And it's just kind of grown grown from there. It's kind of been like a grassroots kind of research project starting from there into what I'm looking at now. And you were mentioning social work. And for both of us, we know that's an impact major at Cal State San Bernardino, among a couple other ones within the College of Social and Behavioral Sciences. Now, of course, when students are in those pre-majors, you know, the goal is hopefully get them into the actual major, but you probably run across some students that may not end up 
getting accepted into the program. How do you help those students kind of like re-navigate into something else? I, um, that's great. Sometimes they don't want to. Um, I have definitely had students tell me, nope, I'm not going to change. I'm going to stick it out and reapply. And I go, okay, well, this is what we kind of need to do then. Um, I think it's uh, with the annual conference from Nakata being virtual, I was able to attend this year. And one of the pre-conference workshops that I went to was all about finding a parallel plan versus um, kind of finding a backup plan. And I think that's really helped me shape how I do this. Um, Because I always ask students or I used to ask students, what is your backup plan if you don't get into this program? And for students, that's very alarming. They're like, I've been working towards this career for forever for them, it seems like, right? Um, You know, I've always wanted to be a social worker. I always wanted to work with kids. I've always, I don't want to do any other profession. (laughs) You know, it has to be this way. Um, And so I've learned over the years that you have to be very intentional with how you use your wording with students. And so being able to do this pre-conference workshop of, let's think of a parallel plan. Let's make sure that your end goal is the same. The end goal is going to be that you're still going to be a social worker, that you're still going to work in this area, but we're going to come up with a parallel plan that is similar to being in the social work program in the event that you're not in the social work program. Um, And I tell students all the time that you do not have to have a bachelor's in a certain area to necessarily go into a master's in a certain area. Um, I think a a lot of us um, in academic advising know this. We have backgrounds in very different areas to go into the profession that we're in. I mean, my background is in sociology. You know, my master's is in higher education. There wasn't even a focus on academic advising in my master's program, but yet here I am. I'm still doing the profession and a lot of students, I feel, don't know that. They, they think that um, if I want to be a social worker, I have to do a social work bachelor's degree in order to do a social work master's degree. And that is the only way I'm ever going to become a social worker um, or I'm ever going to become a nurse or a doctor or, you know, whatever, whatever their plan is. And so I go over with those students of, well, let's look at what this profession actually is. What does this profession actually entail? What is it pulling from? And for social work in particular, it pulls from sociology and psychology and anthropology and political science and all of our other social behavioral science areas to kind of come up with the theories and the practices that social work workers employ in their practice. Um, And once I'm able to kind of get a student to realize that, I tell them, look, your training is going to be the same no matter what. It's the lens that you're looking at things through. So if you want to work with, um, if you want to work with families and children at an individual clinical level, Let's look at a bachelor's degree in psychology where you're learning how the brain works, where you're learning how those um, 
those functions work, how you're learning how different disorders work and how do we treat these different disorders? Because then when you go into your master's program and you're, you're getting more in-depth training, you can pull from those theories that you're learning at a bachelor's level to now apply them at the master's level. And so once I'm able to get that to click for them, then they're good. They're like, Oh, okay. Yeah. This is what I want to do then. You you have a lovely way of approaching things. Uh, I think you could uh, t- talk uh, talk students around a great way of of, uh, of getting people to to understand. Um, you've touched on aspects of, of um, probably proactive advising a little bit in uh, thus far, but I know it's uh, an area of interest uh, for you. Can can you maybe talk a, a, a little bit more in in relation to that and 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 how you look to to implement it? Proactive advising, um, when I started advising, was still called intrusive advising. And then I read an article. It's like, oh, we're going to call it proactive advising now. And I said, okay, <laughs> let's let's move forward with that. Um, and it's interesting because that's the section that I just wrote on my dissertation, of like that whole history of how we changed it. Um, but I didn't know, again, I didn't know that's what I was doing when I was meeting with students, when we had to kind of change those plans. And um, so it's it's definitely something that I've learned how to do um, and how to do effectively. I think that it's something that is continuing to grow. Um, I think it's something that is continuing to become more important at the university level of how do we reach students earlier. Um, I mean, the whole, the whole premise behind proactive advising is reaching out to students before they know that they need to be reached out to. So how do we reach those students before they're in that situation of, oh, I didn't get into a program or, oh, I'm on academic probation or, oh, I'm deeply into this major and now I don't like it. What do I, what do I do? Um, And so I think it takes the, uh, it's a mindset as an advisor to kind of know that you're not just there to meet with students when they walk in the door. It's a mindset of an advisor of, I want to make sure that my student population is doing well. How can I do that? Um, and so with going again, back to social work, just because I've worked with them for so long, it's making sure that as I have conversations with students Um, at the pre-social work level, making sure that I mention it. I intentionally mention it every time I meet with a pre-major of this is the way it is. You know, I don't, I'm not the type of advisor that'll sugarcoat things. And I know my colleagues know that. I'm very blunt um, when it comes to my advising sometimes. And so, I, I ask students of what, what is that plan? What are our other plans that we're making? Not to say that you're not admitted. And if you are admitted, great, we move forward with this plan. But if you're not admitted, let's at least start thinking about it now. Let's start thinking about it early enough so that you don't send me an email over the summer and say, hey, I wasn't admitted into this program. My life is over. Now I don't know what to do. Um, And that's really come from the fact that I have gotten those emails of, my life is over. I'll never be a social worker. I don't know what to do anymore. And um, 
it's kind of been more of this intentional thing as I've matured as an advisor of, I think this is part of our, our mission, you know, of making sure that our students know their options and taking it a step further in our advising practices in terms of making sure that the students have a plan and that they're self-aware and they're building those, um, those skills of, okay, this is how I'm going to come up with a new plan if the first one doesn't work out um, so that they're a little bit more self-efficient as well. So we're kind of pushing them out of the nest a little bit, you know, to say, we're here to guide you. We're definitely here to guide you for as long as you need us for as often as you need us. Um, But I think if we take it that step further to have them start thinking about that early then it's going to help them in the long run, not only for the rest of their bachelor's degree, but just also once they graduate and once they move into their into their professional positions. Yeah. And you've mentioned plans and we know you pretty much are a planner. You know, you have your to do list, you, you have you write in your own planner. And we know with 2020, it was a chaotic year and even going into 2021, chaotic year. And you might have some some people that might be looking to maybe organize a little bit better, time manage a little bit better. Do you have any tips that have worked for you that you could share? Sure. It's definitely been something I have learned how to do. Um, I didn't used to be like this. I'm still a huge procrastinator, even though I do make my list and then I just move it farther down on my list. Um, But I think when I got into my master's program and I was working full time with my master's program, that's when I really started to have to learn, okay, how do I organize my life to make sure that everything is taken care of. I was living on my own, so I had to pay my own bills. Plus, I'm doing a master's program. Plus, I have to work full time. And so um, I think one of the things that has helped me is definitely trial and error um, with planning and organization. What works, what doesn't. Um, So I've been through so many kinds of planners that I have just learned um, that using a paper planner still works for me. Um, there, there are people that I know that they only ever use their phones. They only ever use their computers, which is great. And I use that for work. Um, but I think what helps me and, and what I've learned how to do is I have to write it down. I have to write it out. I have to write down, okay, what do I need to do? In what order do I need to do it? And it gives me that really good satisfaction to actually just check it off, to actually check it off the list that this is done. Um, And so the, the first thing is just that trial and error. What works for you? What doesn't work for you? If it works for you, great, keep it. If it doesn't work for you, find something else. Um, is, is the, the biggest thing. And then, um, the other thing is making the time to plan for everything. So my Sundays are usually spent putting my planner together for the week. Um, we put our grocery list together for the week so that I can order everything. And then we get, I get prepped for that. And I have that time dedicated and set aside. And my husband knows that that's when I'm at the kitchen or the dining room table. 
that's when I plan everything out. I got my laptop up. I got my planner out. I've got my stickers out, my <laughs> multiple colored pens um, to plan for the week. And that's just how it, again, it's finding what works for you. And that's going to be the biggest step. Um, that first decision you have to make, though, is that you want to do that, um, that you want to be able to plan like that. And so that's, um, yeah, like I said, it, it's been a long time <laughs> that I've been learning how to do this. And so I'm now finally in a mode of, okay, this is what I do. This is how I do it. Um, but then also making sure that I have the flexibility to adjust. Um, so I'm not so strict in my planning of like, I can't adjust anything. So for example, tonight we were supposed to have chicken for dinner. I did not set out chicken for dinner. And so even though there is chicken planned on my planner, we are not having that for dinner. Um, I don't know what we're having for dinner. So we'll kind of figure that out as we go. But, you know, it's, it's also making sure that, yeah, I'm a planner, but I have that flexibility to change it if I need to as well. Um, and that's definitely something that I've learned is like, you just got to take it as what works for you. Yeah, I think adaptability and, and flexibility are uh, very, very important. Um, now, Matt mentioned in, in your bio, and I know we mentioned just before we start the recording, but listeners are always interested when they hear about um, pets. We mentioned that you, ha- you have cats. Can you tell us a, a little bit more about the, the cats that you have? Yes. So we, I love talking about my cats. Don't like talking about myself, but I will talk about my cats. Um, so we have, we currently have three. Um, our oldest is MJ. Um, his, uh, full name is Munchie Jr. Because he has the same markings as a cat that I had growing up. Um, and so, uh, he is 10. He'll be 11 this year. Um, and he was, um, actually the litter of a cat that my mom still has, Mama Kitty. So that is actually her son. They absolutely hate each other. Um, <laughs> but uh, so yeah, we have MJ. Um, he's my he's my cuddler. He knows when I'm not feeling well. Um, he loves to steal chicken off of plates. Um, he loves to. Um, my husband has Star Trek figurines on his desk and so uh recently he's been going after the Klingon bird of prey (laughs) um and so I can hear my husband from the office going MJ stop eating the ship um so I really think that um MJ would make a great Starfleet officer um if the opportunity were ever to arise um and then we have Sadie Sadie um she is nine Um, she is definitely, uh, her own reclusive self. Um, she was a rescue cat. Um, when I moved into my first apartment, I I had just MJ. Um, and I wanted to get him a companion. And so somebody posted on campus that there was a rescuer that had kittens. Um, and so I went and I was like, okay, well, let's, you know, see. So she's, She's definitely a weird one. She's a little bit cross-eyed. Her vision in one of her eyes is not great. So she will fall off of things um, or she'll roll over onto the floor. 
and, and things. Um, she's the one that was snoring earlier. Um, so she's definitely come out of her shell more that she's gotten older. Um, so she's just kind of, I don't know. She's our blob. She's our fat, she's our fat cat, our fat tabby cat. Um, and then recently we got goose. So goose is our, uh, tuxedo cat. I love tuxedo cats. They're my favorite kind. Um, and so he is, two now. He just celebrated his second birthday on January 1st. Um, total mama's boy. Well, it's nothing to do with my husband. Um, he will sleep all day. We won't see him all day. And then at night he'll come out, he'll be on my lap and my lap only. Um, and then at night he likes to sleep on my face. Um, he is the only cat I've ever had that drools. Um, so when he was smaller, he would drool on my face. Um, it's gotten better now that he's a little bit older, but he still likes to sleep on my face. So they are definitely, they all play with each other. Um, definitely characters. And so it's, it's nice. I'm, I'm definitely more of a cat person. My, my Instagram and Facebook as Matt knows is full of more cat pictures than anything else in the in their def, their antics <laughs> well speaking of cats i just got this i haven't framed it yet but it's a uh, the doctor who with all cats nice very nice <laughs> i gotta get that framed. but yeah i i like animals but cats better yeah. so now i i was talking with dr deborah parsons who we've had on as a guest before and of course you know dr parsons and very entertaining. And I was telling her that I was like, yeah, we're actually interviewing Jessica. And uh, she actually responded back and she was kind of giving me a little history lesson and kind of things that were in your bio. But she had put, uh, when our university made the decision to hire professional advisors, Jessica was the first candidate to be hired. And her passion for advising students was one of the top selling points. And five colleges competed for the top 10 qualified applicants and every college selected Jessica. However, College of Social Behavioral Sciences was the fortunate winner and Jessica's educational roots are from this college, and she hit the ground running and has not looked back. And I think that a lot just shows like the progression of kind of where you started to where you are now and kind of how involved you are and the many things that you're involved in and finding the time to be able to attach yourself to a lot of that and continue that professional growth and personal growth. And we're at time for the interview, but Jessica, I... I feel like I I was trying to think of the last time we actually spoke verbally, and I think it was pre-pandemic. I, I can't think of any other time that, that we've talked since then. Everything's really been through social media or through email work talking about students. Yeah, I think the last time we had a conversation was we were actually preparing for the Region 9 conference in Palm Springs. That's the last time we did, we did our, um, our promotional video, um, yep. for, for the volunteers. That was the last time. And then I think like a week later is when everything just completely shut down. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been, I can't believe almost a year. Yeah. Cause like right when it got canceled then right around the corner after that, it was like, all right, everyone's working from home now. 
but I'm I'm glad that we got this to happen and to do this interview and we got to use this to actually now have a live conversation. So Jessica, thank you so much for being part of this podcast episode. Yes, thank you. Thank you again. I very much enjoyed it and and I enjoy I enjoy listening to the podcast. I do listen to the to the podcast in the mornings um when you all post your new episodes. And so when you post like where people are listening from, I'm like, there's my town. I see my town. I'm like the only one there, but I'm from there. Um, so I very much enjoyed. And I, and I think it's a great, it's a great addition to our advising community that, that both of you are doing this and allowing, you know, people to speak about their experiences and in, in different, different walks of life. So I, I feel very, um, fortunate and and appreciative that that you both chose me to to do an interview like this i really enjoyed it thanks to jessica for making the time to speak to us i enjoyed learning about transfer students their particular challenges and needs and also about the implementation of proactive advising approaches up next, we have Brendan O'Callaghan from La Trobe University in Australia. That's the same institution as Suzanne Seeley, who we spoke to in episode 20 back in October of last year. We had a great chat with Brendan, and you can hear that now. Brendan O'Callaghan is a senior academic advisor at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia. He has been working in both the tertiary and secondary education sectors for the better part of the last 20 years. While he has spent the majority of that time directly supporting tertiary students across the student life cycle, this time has also seen him complete a Bachelor of Arts in History, Writing and Media Studies, as well as a Master's of Secondary Teaching. His work as a teacher in Australia and abroad helped him clarify a sense of purpose in helping young people achieve their potential, which drew him back to the tertiary sector. Ultimately, under the guidance and mentorship of Suzanne Seeley, Brendan has helped launch one of Australia's first professional academic advising teams. As one of Latrobe's first academic advisors in the 2019 pilot program, Brendan now leads a team of advisors specializing in courses in the university's College of Arts, Social Sciences, and Commerce. Brendan, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Well, we're delighted to have the opportunity to speak to you. And you do have a, a really interesting bio, and I'm sure we're going to delve into to that. Um, but I suppose one of the things we like to, to ask guests about is kind of their, their path into higher ed. And, and yours is, is really interesting. And I think Matt um, alluded to, you know, you, you've kind of been in education, but not always at higher ed tertiary level, but you've been called back into it in, in ways. Can you talk to us a little bit about like, um, you know, some of the roles you've had and, and that led you to, to where you are now? Absolutely. Well, yeah, I started it all um, as a mature age student um, at the University of Canberra. Um, I wasn't what you'd call a um, certainly not a straight A student in high school. In fact, I was sort of barely there. And um, as a result, it took me a few years to even get to uni. I think I was about 23 when I started. And I think I probably lacked that sort of clarity of purpose. Really enjoyed the writing stuff. Otherwise, there was a whole bunch of, you know, general comms theory stuff that I just didn't gel with. And yeah, so I, I wound up sort of more or less dropping out, finding work at the uni at the same time, just sort of started on the front counter at the student administration desk. And, you know, so it almost 
you know, it was just one of those sort of happy little accidents where I sort of was talking to someone who had a job and I'm like, I need some money. It was mainly supposed to be just for the holidays. And then I realized how much I, I liked the money and, and sort of wasn't really getting into the course. So I actually just went through the full three-year sequence of um, the writing stuff, ditching the rest of it, and kept working for the uni. And sort of by that time, I'd become a, you know, a, a permanent sort of member of staff and had sort of gone on to work in the fees and enrolment space through quite an interesting time, you know, when there was a lot of changes going on in the way that fees were, were being organised in Australia. Um, so that was interesting. But then I worked graduation and I worked graduation for my cohort of students who were all graduating with their degrees. And I was just sort of like, oh, man. And that was kind of it for a while. I sort of thought, oh, well, that, that's just me. I'm just not, I'm one of those guys who isn't destined to, to graduate, you know, whatever. And I kept working in the uni sector, you know, took advantage of a few opportunities, went overseas, you know, worked in London for a while, lived in China. I wound up teaching English there. And that sort of really opened up some, some ideas about what I could be doing. You know, certainly teaching was something that I found really interesting and rewarding, but I realized I had no training to fall back on. Yeah, they didn't really require a great deal in terms of qualifications um, in, in China at the time. So, you know, I sort of did my year and sort of sort of came back to Australia and needed to find a job. And so, of course, I went straight back into what I knew and wound up working in sort of international admissions. But again, sort of working directly with students. And, you know, it was great to be able to bring the knowledge that I'd had from working with Chinese students into that sort of area and, and actually sort of also just the, the understanding of what it felt like to be a foreigner um, in another country and, you know, not understanding the language always and trying to sort of work that out. And yeah, so I sort of went back into there for a while. And, you know, look, I mean, I'd been working, um, this, this actually brought me to Melbourne. So I'd been, you know, by now been working sort of at a relatively entry level role for quite some time and I sort of felt like that was starting to to grind and I felt like there was kind of a little bit of a ceiling that my lack of a degree sort of brought like you know without that degree I couldn't really sort of say well okay I deserve to be you know either managing staff or doing this sort of next level stuff but there was always this sort of you know being able to support students was always just such a great thing when you could go through and get a really good outcome for a student and often these outcomes, to you, it's just something that you're doing, you know, like on a day. But for them, sometimes this would be the difference between, you know, what's going on in their life, you know, whether they have to go back to their home country or whether they get to pursue their, you know, whatever their sort of ideas are. So, you know, a student even just getting an offer letter at a particular time could make a huge difference in their life. And I really, I really enjoyed that. And I guess I wanted to... I guess I was frustrated by the the limits of the role, and that's been a sort of big sort of a big part. So look, I mean, I didn't have the degree, and you know, I was sort of butting up against this sort of ceiling, and you know, eventually I was like, you know what, I'm just kind of over it, so I'm going to change it, and I decided to go back to uni and you know, study to be a teacher because you know I knew that that would be that would open a lot of doors, could actually lead to a lot of international travel, um, <laughs> COVID, but you know, I thought. You know, that, that could really be something that would help me help people make changes and, and or help, you know, make that difference in their lives and be a rewarding sort of job as well. So I went back and I studied sort of 
almost as a lark, just history, because I, I studied media studies because I was really interested in film. But then I was like, okay, like what else would I teach? You know, the creative writing, yeah, sure, but I needed to have like another major. And so I just picked history as sort of like this sort of random thing, but it wound up being my, my overriding passion. And I've really fallen quite deeply into that. But, you know, it's good. So I, you know, finished that degree, went straight into a master of teaching, had a kid at the same time, got married. And so it was a busy couple of years and then went straight into teaching. And so I was teaching in high schools for a couple of years and, and it was exhausting. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure you guys know teachers who are always just you know complaining continuously about being tired. I can tell you the rumors are true. It is really just exhausting. Um, and I think you know perhaps going on a straight slog from studying my bachelor's and then my master's and then having a kid and I won't say that getting married was the same sort of stress, but you know it was it was, it was a big few years. And I just found myself spent all the time and not being able to spend the time, the quality time with my son and getting frustrated with him because I was thinking about work and going, well, okay, something's got to, something's got to change. I need to be able to give that, that time to him. And I was working like 60 hour weeks in teaching, like, you know, on the reg and, you know, then more when it got busier. And I really felt like, you know, if I'm going to make a difference in one person's life, it should probably be my son. And so I came back to La Trobe um, where I'd been working and I worked in this role of supporting secondary students currently in high school, obviously, to develop their aspiration. And we'd bring in university students who had similar sorts of backgrounds. And what we really wanted to do is present them with a, a multitude of models for people that they could see themselves in. So, you know, people of colour, people living out of home, people who just had a really bad experience, whether that's sort of illness or a disability or something like that mature age student and just a, a variety of different models where students might be able to sort of see something of themselves and realize that you know whatever happens there is a path to university if you want it badly enough and if you're willing to work for it so it was great working in that sort of capacity and we wound up you know that that was a really great role and so I spent about six months in it and sort of would have been quite happy to stay but we had a at the end of 2018 we had this big planning day and part of one of the activities, this is the whole student success portfolio at La Trobe. And so we were working under the guidance of the Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Students, Professor Jess Vandalelli. And she, one of the activities that she'd arranged for us was what she called a hackathon, which is really just a sort of a planning session. So the idea was, you know, like a, a little in that sort of design thinking vein, like no idea is too crazy. Think about, you know, what, you would like to introduce at Latrobe that would, you know, improve the student experience. And I sort of had this idea rolling around the back of my head from the times, even going back to, you know, like my early days on the counter at University of Canberra and feeling like there's only a certain amount, you know, there's a limit. There's only so much you can do as a frontline sort of staff member. And how good would it be if you could take a student issue and cut through all the noise that exists in every university I've ever worked in and just bring the student through with you to a good outcome and to have the power to do that, you know, or the authority to say, no, this needs to happen. And so I wasn't the only person on that day to have this idea, but for me it was something that was just really, I think, vital. And I always had in the back of my head that this would be something that I would like to do if it existed. And so what I wound up pitching um, 
was, you know, this idea of a student advisor that had a sort of holistic sort of area of responsibility where they could step into the admission space if they needed to, step into the enrolment space or the fees or whatever, or at least work closely with the people who, who, who work in those areas and try to cut through the noise and just get straight to a good student outcome. Because, you know, time and time again in this sort of work, you see students who have just been bouncing around from place to place. And how are they supposed to know all the sort of intricacies of our systems? And obviously, you know, spoiler alert, you know, I was talking essentially about academic advising. I didn't know of, or I didn't know quite at that stage, just how deeply entrenched the idea of academic advising was in other places. I had seen people in sort of academic advisor roles, but typically they were academics. So, you know, I just, I, I didn't really know that this was a thing, let alone, certainly not at the professional level, let alone something that was already in the works at La Trobe. So in some ways it was kismet, you know, or serendipity or whatever you want to call it. And it was great because sort of Jess stood up at the end of the sort of thing and, you know, I'd sort of hammered this idea and, you know, when, when it had gone into into um, the development sort of side of things, I'd made sure I was assigned to that group and was probably being really annoying and taking over the whole thing because I just like, it's like a dog with a bone and I get like that. I just wanted this thing to happen. And so Jess stands up at the end of them of, of that and sort of says, well, that was a pretty good session. And, you know, just so you know, this is something we're doing next year. And so I was just electrified. You know, to, to my mind, I just invented a job, um, had it approved, you know, on the spot. And, uh, you know, probably been sort of tapped as the front runner uh, candidate at the same time, you know. Uh, so it was, it was really just a, a great, a great sort of thing and um, you know I had a lot of conversations over the next you know a few weeks and early in the following year I'd sort of heard that you know there was going to be some movement on a PD and then it was going to be happening and yeah so I'd sort of just made myself you know that annoying guy who they, they couldn't not think about for this role and I was lucky to be appointed as one of the two pilot advisors uh, so that was um, April of 2019. And up until that point though like what was the advising like at Latrobe? Was it faculty advisors? Was there how did students navigate the university? There've been a few iterations. There was some time ago, and look, there have probably been more than this. You know, sometimes we tend to think that we're sort of, you know, discovering something for the first time, whereas really it, there have been people who've tried and it just hasn't taken off for whatever reason. So you know, my institutional knowledge goes back about about seven years at Latrobe. So there, there may have been other things going on before here. But the ones that I'm aware of, there was a version that included academics. And um, it was, you know, um, I think the idea is each academic gets 10 students. So I read a report on this some time ago. I'm sort of a bit fuzzy on the details, but I think the main issue was that um, with academics, whenever you try to get, you know, this is borne out in all the sort of literature on the subject. Um, when you get academics who have teaching and research loads and they're also expected to do advising, like something's got to give. And usually it's the advising sort of piece, no matter how dedicated the staff, because I mean, every academic, that I've spoken to at Latrobe, um, almost without exception, has been so passionate about the well-being of students. You know, they they do want to be able to do that, but it's hard. It's really hard to be able to do that when you've got so much else going on. So 
Um, I think that was the main reason that it didn't take off, that it was just, you know, the students weren't sort of feeling drawn into it um, and staff didn't really have as much time. And then there was another iteration more recently um, that ran for a couple of years, which was a more development, developmental advising focus. And uh, look, I mean, I, I guess I wasn't here for that time, so I couldn't talk about why that sort of didn't continue. Certainly, I think one of the, the advantages this pro program has over that program is that we are sort of more deeply embedded across the university in a variety of ways. We're centralised, we're very heavily centralised. So even though I work specifically for the College of Arts, Social Sciences and Commerce, and we have another um, sort of side of the university, if you want to call it that, which is the College of um, Science, Health and Engineering. So a sort of fairly neat divide along those lines. And the processes in those colleges are very different. And I think they sort of tried to work along those different lines um, but without necessarily being um, trained and embedded into the administrative structure as well, which sort of, you know, sits between those two colleges or underneath it, perhaps, um, however you'd like to visualise. And, yeah, I think that was one of, one of um, the issues there. So us being able to receive administrative training, uh, originally just at, like in an inquiry sort of mode, um, but we have sort of, um, through our iterations of academic advising at Latrobe, we've sort of gone a little bit um, deeper on that as well. But also sort of being embedded with course coordinators and working in partnership with them. And so that way we sort of were able to get specialist course knowledge. And that's something that I guess the developmental advisors wouldn't have had because they were all generalists. But we, uh, I am... Um, historically, the Bachelor of Arts advisor. And so I know a lot about the BA at Latrobe. I've done the BA at Latrobe, um, but I've also spent a lot of time with the course coordinators understanding what the issues are for this particular course. And it's a very intricate sort of course. It's complex. There are 57 majors that students can select. And I think maybe this works a little bit differently than perhaps it does in the UK and the States. Um, certainly from talking with Suzanne in the States, it's a, it works a bit differently. Uh, and maybe the BA is actually like a replica of half of that because you can go in, you choose a major, and then you can just choose electives or you can choose other majors or you can sort of mix and match. You can really make it your own. And that level of individualization is something that I really love about this degree. And, um, you know, having been through it all, I sort of feel like I can talk to lots of elements and, you know, I'll be like, oh, you'll love this subject because this is the academic and they are just, like, brilliant. So um, it's been great to be able to sort of do that. So, yeah, this is uh, – uh, that I'm aware of, this is the third version of advising at Latrobe, but it's the first time that we've been centralised with discipline-specific knowledge. And it's really great because we've sort of been able to sort of build it from the ground up in a way. It's like, you know, looking at sort of some of the things that have happened before, but also just trying to make it its own thing as well. You know, no doubt treading the same territory that, that others have gone before, but making it our own. Uh, Brandon, can maybe you talk to us a little bit about the, the work that, that you're, you're doing. And I think you said you started in April 2019, so almost two years in. Have there been developments within that time or is it still a little bit early in the process and, it, it, you know, it, it, it's going to develop maybe as, as it goes on? Uh, I don't think we've reached our final form yet. 
but um, there have been a tremendous amount of developments. Um, so it started out April 2019 as a two-advisor pilot. So myself and my colleague Danielle, um, we were respectively looking after the Bachelor of Arts and the Bachelor of Science. Um, and so for the first, you know, few months, really, it was just us. But we were also sort of, you know, building the ship while trying to sail it. So, you know, we went through a pretty intensive sort of um, training routine where we spent a lot of time one-on-one -on -one embedded with academics and seeing their offices and working through problems together. Um, but also, you know, trying to get a sense of how they wanted to do things. We'd go into the administrative um, areas and learn about the sort of work that they do and, you know, sort of build that network as well. Um, we'd sort of connect up with, uh, connect up with, you know, sort of other support services from around the university and sort of get a sense of what they do. And really in that way, try to work out where the boundaries of our role was and, you know, where the gaps were that we needed to fill. This all sort of started, there was a, a, a research paper drawn up by Sally Kift, which actually identified that there was a gap in Latrobe support services. And so I guess that's what we were brought in to fill. But we sort of needed to feel out where the boundaries were and sort of try to work out where the, the edge of our territory was and where the beginnings of other people were. was. And, you know, naturally there's um, overlap in certain areas and, you know, that can sort of, you know, be tricky to navigate. Um, but I think we're through that. And that was sort of the first 12 months. And, and in that 12 months also, we wound up expanding the pilot to include two new advisors. So that was really exciting um, to be able to do that. But, you know, we're also designing the systems that we use, like, you know, what the look of the, our case um, management systems would look like. You know, how are we going to book in student appointments and how might that differ from the way it had been done in the past? Um, you know, how, how do we communicate with our students and how do they communicate with us? So we're doing all of that stuff as well, which is really, really exciting. And that was, you know, predominantly in that initial phase. Then we expand to four advisors. Um, and then I think it was, so then that probably took us up to, you know, March 2020. And we all know, you know, Bedlam, hell broke loose. And I'm, we were just really glad to be doing what we were doing because it meant that we were actually in a position to do, you know, some really good stuff. Um, and sort of, I think it was recognized because there was uh, some appetite from other people around the university to fund more advisors. But, you know, it was a bit of a tricky time. So we wound up doing some a series of, of secondments and brought in another six, I think, um, advisors um, temporarily. So they were sort of people from around the university. But COVID's hit pretty hard. And, you know, like every university in Australia, um, the universities had to go through um, a series of... Um, restructures and, and things like that, um, you know, periods of redundancy and all that, and, you know, all of those sort of types of things. Um, but even in that, the role of advising has been seen as so important that we've actually, in that restructure, there have been roles created for new advisors. And so now we have a, a complement of, uh, I think, 13 advisors, including myself and Danielle. And... We're now covering every undergraduate uh, student in principle anyway. So um, the idea is that we use um, risk modelling to um, to work out which students are most 
in need of our support and we sort of we work that way so everyone can book with us but the ones we're going to go after most proactively are those that are at the highest risk of um, attrition or you know, academics or academic performance issues. Now, when you say that anyone can schedule an appointment, now, is it just within your college, those students within those majors or any major can schedule with any advisor? Any undergraduate student can book their advisor. So um, it's been a little bit trickier um, with some cohorts, like, you know, where I've got a large cohort like the Bachelor of Arts, it's quite simple in that way because, you know, I only need to know the Bachelor of Arts. It's a pretty intricate course, but, you know, there's that. You know, one of my colleagues might look after um, School of Allied Health and look after a dozen courses, but potentially there are fewer students who are going to be, you know, at risk in that cohort. So they should still be able to get fairly specialised support um, with whichever advisor that they book into. Um, but yeah, it's sort of like, any, so it's not anyone can book with anyone, but anyone can book in with their advisor. Um, but, you know, I think the Nakata um, reference point is somewhere around one advisor per 400 students thereabout. Um, we sort of tend to go five, six. I mean, there are some advisors that have 1,200 students um, in their list. But again, we use those um, those risk that risk modelling to sort of be able to target the students proactively that most need that level of support. And we've we've also developed a system of um, of backup advisors. So someone else will sort of train to be like a secondary um, support on a different cohort so that if um, someone's sick or steps out or, you know, wins the lottery or whatever, um, then they can sort of step in and support those students as well and we're not going to be leaving students in the lurch. And, you know, when I say that we're not in our final form, I, I feel like there is another step, you know, that I'm probably being way too ambitious, um, but there is another, another step where we're actually able to get closer to that sort of um, enough advisors to get closer to that um, one to sort of 400 ratio. And, of course, this, um, this doesn't actually include postgraduate students. You know, so many of them also need this sort of support and we want to be able to give it to them. But I mean, you know, you have to do what you can with what you've got. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm quietly optimistic that, you know, at some point in the next um, few years, we'll get to the stage where we can actually have that really dedicated support um, for every student, um, irrespective of their situation. Brennan, I suppose one thing I, I'd be interested in, in knowing, because you mentioned earlier that in some ways, you know, you knew, there was the institutional knowledge for you with Latrobe and you had done the degree there yourself. But the fact that you had you've um, been at a number of institutions, you've worked at different institutions. Each institution has its own culture. I've worked at a few myself and you've worked internationally and obviously exposed to, to different cultures. Do you think that w has been a help to you in your, your current role? Absolutely. I mean, yes, the, I think the more life experience we can develop, um, the more we can share, I guess. Um, for me, that's always been a really central part of being an advisor, um, being able to share my own experiences, my own knowledge of, of different sort of professions and, and systems and um, just ways of dealing with issues. I, I really try to make every advising appointment that I have more of a conversation where we can sort of 
just share about ourselves and try to find, you know, different ways of thinking about the problems they, they're having. And sort of, you know, like, you know, having been around the block a few times, it's, it's good, particularly when you're dealing with those sort of fresh out of, um, of high school students who, you know, have these really, to them, really clearly defined um, ideas about the way things are going to work in their head. But then, you know, that, that they've, they've come to university, hopefully, to broaden that. Um, and so it's great to be able to draw on all those different experiences to um, to sort of help them see perhaps different perspectives. Is that is that what you were sort of thinking about? Yeah, yeah. It was just to because you know be, the the specific had had been of such benefit. It was I was just wondering was the fact that you had that you know roundabout experience the, the general that's what I was interested in. Yeah. So yeah. And and particularly with the Bachelor of Arts as well, like the, the degree itself is so broad and, and it's for people, I think, like me who are interested in everything. Um, yeah, it's also for people who want to zero in on something very specifically. But I love the conversations I love the best are the ones with students who are like, well, I don't know what to do because I love this and I love that. And I'm really interested in this. And then I saw this and I'm like, what is that about? Um, and I have no idea how to navigate the structure and choose everything. And so it's about sort of maybe putting that into context and saying, well, okay, if you're interested in that, why don't you try out, you know, this major or this subject? Or if you, you know, do a couple of these subjects and a couple of those subjects, then you can sort of work out what you want. And this doesn't have to be the end, of course. I mean, when it goes that way and you're sort of talking about... Um, you know, the ideas that, you know, they could actually sort of just try out a few things and then sort of zero in on that as they go down and um, and and then maybe do some postgraduate study. And, you know, like opening up the idea of learning and education as a lifelong process that will never complete, you know, because um, a lot of people are like, you know, I'll just go, I'll get my degree, I'll get a job and that'll be it, right? Like I'll just be sorted. Um, and, you know, I think if they'll, they'll be, as soon as they leave university, they'd be pretty quickly disabused of that notion. But to be able to sort of get them into that mindset at the beginning of their journey, it's, it's pretty rewarding, I think. Yeah, that's definitely a perfect way to, to put it. And yeah, like, it's not once you graduate, that's it. You know, there's more to life and, and more <laughs> things. And who knows, they probably will be coming back for a higher degree afterwards. Yeah, I hope so. Now, you were in the pilot program, and now you're leading a team of advisors within the, within the College of Arts, Social Sciences, and Commerce. How has your role changed, and what, what are your roles and responsibilities in addition to advising nowadays? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's an interesting one. Um, so when we started out, yeah, there's always been something else while I've been in this advising thing, you know. It was the planning and development sort of stage in the early sort of part and also just trying to work out, you know, what it is, how, how do I sort of do this? I mean, in some way, shape or form, I'd been sort of doing advising anyway, you know, like, you know, even in the earlier roles, I was never really transactional, but anyway. So um, the big change has been obviously as I sort of bring on more direct reports um, and I've got more staff working under me than you know, there are just other things that go along with that. And also being in a sort of a strategy slash management sort of um, position, you know, there are all these sort of high level meetings that you need to go along to, processes you need to drive. Um, 
and things that you know you sort of need to be working on in addition to the work of advising, which is you know particularly all encompassing as well, you know, um, particularly in those sort of first few weeks of semester. Um, it's just all about the students, and it's got to be, you know. So one of the things that we've done around that is um, just hire a really good team. You know, we pay them well. They're at a, they're at a pretty pretty decent level, uh, and we expect you know big things from them. So we 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 don't you know just we're not just bringing in people who are going to just come in, punch punch a ticket, do the job, you know, finish at five. And, and that's it. You know, these are all people who are sort of really high performing um, and people who really care about the students as well. Um, and that's sort of, it's a cultural thing. You know, it's sort of, we recruited people that would sort of, you know, that have shown us that. Um, and we also, it's, it's part of the culture that we instill. So um, the leadership team, um, I think, is quite strong. Um, as well, so it's not just me doing it. I've got a um, sort of my partner for the she side of things, um, Danielle. I rely on all the time. Um, I think it's you know sort of a quite a symbiotic thing. And what's great is we build a team that have all these different strengths that complement each other. So we're not all the same cookie cutter people, but we, you know, we use our sort of collective strengths to overcome our individual weaknesses, and I think it works really well. Um, our boss, uh, Suzanne Seely, um, says, hire hard, manage easy. And that's been something that's really been vital because if we can't trust our people to go off and just do an, uh, you know, an amazing job, um, then we will have to be taking ourselves away from our students who, at the end of the day, they just need to be our main focus. Brilliant. It's quite interesting i suppose to, to hear and uh, my my question was going to be in in relation to to your leadership style i think you've given a, a little bit of an insight there i mean it, to hear you talk about your team so highly is it, fantastic and to hear you kind of reference Anna and when we had her on, on the podcast it was a really fascinating interview but i mean i suppose is there Thinking about the way in which you you manage the the team, are, are like and and your own approach. I suppose are, are there are there other things that that you would say for people who who are, who do have direct reports and who are kind of in that kind of maybe middle management position that 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 you're in that that you any advice that you would offer. <laughs> I might ask them for some advice too. Um, I won't I won't pretend that I'm um, that I've got the answers um and i am relatively you know recent in the management side of things so um this role has been sort of my first management experience so once again selling the ship while um while building it but i think what's been you know look and, and i won't pretend that i get it right all the time because i'm sure that um there are times where i need to be giving more support to my staff um and often i'm just like you know what you're capable you've got it so I think it's just about time management. You know, the same thing as we would probably say to any student who's having a hard time, you know, it's just about making sure you've got that time. So what I try to do is I have um, advising free days. Um, so normally that's sort of Monday and Friday and sort of I try to keep those free for meetings with staff, for going through things, you know. So um, on this Friday, I've um, well, see who's actually here because we're still in that sort of early sort of part of January and a lot of staff are on leave. But I've got sort of a whole slew of um, appointments with my staff 
to just have a, a monthly one-on-one and to t- just talk about what they need. And that's sort of something that's come down from Suzanne. Um, so that's been a really good way of doing it, just making sure you check in. Because I think, you know, um, this is the sort of sort of job where I imagine it's easy to struggle, you know, like, um, and, you know, the, the weight of everything that you have to do um, piles up and you feel like you have to deliver for your students because that's sort of the ultimate sort of thing. So one, go easy on yourself a little bit because it's not possible to be everything to anyone. Um, but also just make sure you, you make that time to, to sit down with, with them as individuals and, and work out what their needs are and, and try to plug the gap, same way as we would for any, anyone else that we support. And as we wind down with the interview, as we continue in 2021, of course, now a new year, might still feel the same as 2020, you know, <laughs> never know. What's new at Latrobe? Is, is Latrobe having students on campus? Is it hybrid? Are, are employees on campus? So COVID um, is being experienced a little bit differently, um, certainly um, compared to here in the UK that we mainly hear about. I'm not sure what it's like in Ireland at the moment, Um, but um, we've sort of gone on a pretty hard sort of, you know, hard on lockdowns, hard on on trying to sort of, you know, get the cases down. Um, And so we've been working and studying remotely since pretty much March. Um, 2020. Funnily enough, I've actually been living in Canberra, um, you know, 600 k's away without any sort of dip in productivity or connection. That's just all you need, you know. Um, pretty early on when I was sort of just working out if I could do this for a couple of weeks during during the lockdowns, um, Suzanne said, uh, you know, if there was good Wi-Fi, you could do it from the moon. And um, <laughs> yeah, so we've been doing that. Um, and I think we've sort of, you know, got the hang of it now. Um, there is a lot of appetite to be back on campus because uh, there are a lot of students who want that. It's problematic because we still have a lot of international students who can't get into the country um, because our government has instituted a um, uh, travel restrictions and I think you have to be either quite wealthy, I think quite wealthy and Australian basically be able to afford to, to come in. And so we're going to have to work something out for those students. We're going to have to work out something for students who are immunocompromised and other things. So I suspect there'll always be, until vaccines are widely distributed and all that sort of stuff, there'll always be a place for online study. And we're hoping that we can work towards implementing some sort of model that will allow us to do some face-to-face studies as well. Um, Bigger and brighter heads than mine are currently working on that at the university. Um, and I think we're all sort of pretty, pretty keen to see what's going to happen. Um, but I suspect, um, yeah, from, from early February, our team will be rolling back onto the campus. Um, but you know, we've got to look at what that looks like as well in terms of cleaning and, and making sure it's, um, it's safe for, for students to be, um, with us. Um, but in some ways, We've, we've found through this whole experience that the virtual experience is in some ways actually ideal um, for this sort of work. Often we need to share screens. And if we're doing that on in face-to-face, you know, pre-vaccine or whatever, um, then 
we'll have to be trying to sort of, I don't know, have a roll in, roll out method where you sort of roll your chair in to the 1.5, you know, to the point where you can read the screen and then roll back out to a 1.5 meter distance so the other student could roll in and then look at the screen and see, I, I don't see how it works. Whereas with Zoom and Teams and all that sort of stuff, we can actually share screen in real time, you know, as you can take over their sort of um, their system and sort of do some things if you need to, to sort of, to help them work through some of the issues with enrollment. It's actually like, it's a pretty good way of working and it's amazing how many people I've developed really strong relationships with without ever being in the same room. Um, yeah, so that, that, that'll, it'll be interesting to see what happens, but I think um, it'll be a very much a hybrid situation um, for the foreseeable future. And maybe, maybe, I mean, maybe even post-COVID we'll continue doing that because I think we've found that in some cases certain things work better that way. Brendan, you have a line on your LinkedIn profile that says, I follow up, I follow through, and I'm always looking for opportunities to do better. And I think that that isn't just a line, that is something you live. And I think that has shone through in this interview. I mean, to, to hear about your, your journey, to hear about the learnings, to hear about the way in which um, you ha you all have, have built that team at Latrobe and the way in which it has grown, but the fact that you're constantly looking to, to the future in, in ways in which you can improve it and improve the, the student experience. Um, kudos to you, to Suzanne, and, and to the team there. And thanks for taking the, the time to, to chat to myself and to Matt today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And Brendan, if listeners have any questions or want to connect, how can they reach you? Yeah, I think probably the that LinkedIn um, thing is the best way at the moment. Um, I'm trying to wean myself off socials. I, I th yeah, so I think LinkedIn's but the way to go. Sounds good. So search Brendan O'Callaghan in LinkedIn and connect with him there. It was interesting to hear about Brendan's experiences around the world, how he got into advising and how he has utilized that experience uh, from the UK and from China in his current role. I really enjoyed also hearing about the growth in the number of advisors at Latrobe. Brendan, Suzanne and the team there are doing really great work. Absolutely. Thank you again to both Jessica and Brendan for joining us on today's episode. You both were awesome. And do you have any suggestions for us or just want to connect? Find us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at Advising Podcast. We have more episodes coming your way in February. So if you get a chance, check out our previous episodes and we will be back in a couple weeks. Take care. And as always, keep advising. Don't want to complicate you. Complicate you. Complicate you. Complicate you.